If you don't and you need to use the Bible in the pew in front of you, maybe you don't know how to get around it, Matthew chapter 5, the text that we will read is on page 810. 810. We're going to read Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20, and then we'll pray as we begin. Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20. This is what the Spirit says. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to your word, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For the sake of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Now, we've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, and in coming to this text, we come to a transition. Up to this point, Jesus has been talking about the character of a Christian. And one of the things he says is that one who belongs to the kingdom hungers and thirsts for righteousness. And beginning just after this in verse 21, righteousness is going to become Jesus' theme for quite some time. But the question is, why does he go through the difficulty of this transition? Why sidestep, as it were, and talk about the law? Why not just get on with it and and talk about uh, uh, murder and adultery and, and, and and all that comes after that? Well, Let me mention a couple of reasons why I think Jesus is doing this. The first is that Jesus hasn't said much, hasn't said actually anything about the law to this point. If you go back to verse 2, you won't find a mention of the law anywhere. And it may be that within the minds of his listeners, they're wondering how can a holy man, a rabbi, teach us about God's kingdom? without teaching the law, without talking about the law? Doesn't the law teach us how to live as God's people, how to live righteous lives in God's kingdom? And Jesus hasn't said anything about that so far. What's going on here? Well, a second reason may be that some are perceiving that Jesus is anti-law, I mean, they come to that conclusion because he does things like heal people on the Sabbath. He's walking through a field and his disciples pluck grain on the Sabbath so that they can eat. And rather than rebuking them, Jesus defends them. Is it possible that Jesus is just anti-law, that he's ready to throw the whole thing out? He's been handed the Old Testament, as it were, because he's a Jew... 
But now he's just ready to throw that aside and start a whole new teaching, start a whole new religion that has nothing to do with the old. Is he just burning it, so to speak? Well, these are questions that are important. And so Jesus, for the sake of his disciples and for the sake of all who would hear about this and for the sake of those who would read it, he speaks to the issue of the law. Now, before you check out and think this issue of the law, you know, it has nothing to do with me, before you start dreaming about the pot roast or whatever it is that you're going to have for lunch today, let me assure you that the issue of the place of the law in the Christian's life is not just a first century issue. It is an issue for today. You see, there are people who would say to you, you don't have to worry about obedience. Jesus' perfect obedience is credited to you. So don't tie yourself up in knots about obedience. That's, that's legalism. In fact, a man whose name you might recognize if you haven't listened to him, Andy Stanley said in a sermon not too long ago, Peter, James, Paul elected to unhitch the Christian faith from their Jewish scriptures. And my friends, we must as well. Unhitch the Christian faith from the Jewish scriptures, from what we call the Old Testament. In fact, in a book he wrote about three years ago that, was, uh, that came out, he wrote the Ten Commandments to Christians. The Ten Commandments have no authority over you. None. To be clear, thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments. So you see, this business of Jesus and the law, it's not just for Jews sitting around Jesus on this mountainside. It's something that, and it's not just something for uh, seminary professors and scholars to think about. It's something that matters for you, and it's something that matters for me. How should we think about the Old Testament? What did Jesus think? Should we be concerned to obey the moral law of God? Well, Jesus helps us to answer these things. Let's look at it first by seeing that Jesus doesn't discard the law. He fulfills it. Jesus doesn't discard the law. He fulfills it. Okay? Now, this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. Jesus states his relationship to the law as simply and as clearly as possible in verse 17, doesn't he? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, as you may know, as I've said already, the Scripture that would be written and that they would know of in that day would only be what we call the Old Testament. And in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Hebrew Scriptures are divided into three sections. We in English, we like to divide it more than that, but it was three sections, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. Now, some of you who are very clever will raise your hand and say, well, Jesus only talks about the law and the prophets. Is he only talking about two-thirds of the Old Testament here? Well, no. The law and the prophets is shorthand for the Old Testament. It's a way that you could say it. Sometimes it's just the law. 
but it is referring to the Old Testament. Jesus says, don't think for a single minute that I've come to take your Bible from you and throw it in the trash can. Don't think of it. Don't even give that a second thought. I haven't come to do that at all. After all, Deuteronomy 4 says, you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it. Surely throwing it in the trash can would be taking from it, wouldn't it? And so abolishing it, throwing it away, destroying any part of God's law goes against God's will. It's rebellion. So Jesus says, don't even think that that's what I've come to do. And just as a quick point of an implication for our own lives, I wonder in your Bible reading if you tend to throw away parts of the Bible. If you only hang around, say, your favorite parts. This is my go-to verse. I often don't know what to read, so I just read this one verse. I know there's a lot of other great stuff, but I just stick to my favorites. That's, that's how the Lord speaks to me. Well, yes, but incompletely, you see, because the Lord speaks through the whole of the Bible, and the whole of the Bible is meant to be read. You see, Thomas Jefferson did this kind of thing with the New Testament, didn't he? He took his scissors and he cut out the parts that he didn't like, that he really couldn't stomach. Especially all those miracles and the idea of resurrection, that's crazy. Cut that right out. But you see, that kind of thing spits in the face of God, friends. It tells him, I'll take what I want, I'll take what I can handle but nothing more. In essence, it tells God, I am the Lord of the Bible. You are not. You may not take scissors to your physical copy of the Bible, but if you skip and ignore and disregard and forget about and think things are irrelevant, well, you know you trim the truth without actually holding a pair of scissors. No, rather than abolishing the law or the prophets, Jesus has come to fulfill it. That's what he says. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, the word fulfill is one of Matthew's favorite words. It, it, the idea of Jesus fulfilling Old Testament prophecy and the events the event surrounding Jesus fulfilling what had been written in the past is one of Matthew's favorites. The next time that you read Matthew, we won't go through it. The next time you read Matthew, just circle every time you see Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament and you'll see it just comes over and over and over again. Sometimes he doesn't quite say the word fulfilled, so don't just do a word search and then circle those and come show me your Bible how you circled it. Because there are places where it just says, this is what the prophets wrote. It won't say fulfilled. So read it carefully. You'll see Matthew's very interested because his audience is primarily Jewish. So he wants them to see this is not some new religion. This is a fullness that we never knew before. This is a fulfillment. And he doesn't just fulfill bits and pieces of it. He doesn't just fulfill the little statements that Jesus, that uh, Matthew mentions throughout his gospel. 
He fulfills all of it. He says, I haven't come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. He's come to fulfill the law. There are different kinds of law. There were civil laws that governed the nation of Israel. There are ceremonial laws that covered worship. There were moral laws that express what is sin and what is holiness. Things like the Ten Commandments. And Jesus says, well, Andy Stanley, no, 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 no. Not abolish. Fulfill. He came to fulfill the, the, the prophets. The, the, there are prophecies about a coming Messiah. There are prophets about a suffering servant who is going to come and save God's people. Prophecies about God's punishment of sin, His ushering in of His kingdom, the restoration of all things. There are even in the Old Testament personified prophecies, as it were. People who are types and shadows of things to come. There are even the offices, prophet, priest, king. These are all things that point forward to Jesus, to the one who will be the prophet, the priest, the king. He even fulfills the writings, what we call the wisdom literature. You see, 1 Corinthians 1 tells us that Jesus has become for us wisdom from God. Not that text, a different text. It was tricky, wasn't it? I said 1 Corinthians and there's 2 Corinthians. We'll get to that one. But he fulfills it all. But what does it mean that Jesus fulfilled it? Well, I want you, for those of you who have these sorts of things, I want you to think about the flower bulbs that you planted this fall. All right? I want you to think about planting those flower bulbs or wherever they are in your yard right now. What will happen in the spring? The bulb will become a flower and blossom, right? Everything that is needed is in that bulb. There's nothing missing. Nothing's been left out, right? There's nothing that you need to add to the structure of that bulb, it just has to water and grow, you know, water and sunshine, and it will grow in the spring. As it were, the promise is in the bulb. The fulfillment is in the flower. It's not disconnected from the bulb. It doesn't discard the bulb. In fact, it grows out of the bulb. It becomes a full and beautiful expression of the bulb. And that's what happens when, as Jesus, that's what it means for Jesus to fulfill the Old Testament. In the Old Testament is everything. I mean, Paul wouldn't say that it could lead you to faith in Jesus Christ if it was missing stuff. But there is a fullness that had not yet come. There is something, a new, a different expression, a new, fuller, more beautiful expression. Nobody puts a bulb in the ground, and as they see it in the hole, they go, oh my goodness, that is so life-changing. That just changes the very core of who I am. I am moved by it. But what happens when you drive home, and the first time you see all those flowers blossoming? Look at that. Everything that was in there, all the beauty I knew that was in there, has now blossomed. So that, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, 
All the promises of God are yes in Jesus. All of them. And this fulfillment happens in a few ways, as we just observed. It is, it's fulfilled in his teaching. In his teaching. Now, the Pharisees teach the law, all 613 commands, but there's a problem. They don't interpret the Scriptures rightly. Jesus tells them this at one point. But they don't interpret the law correctly. They either add to or subtract from it. That's actually what Jesus is going to confront from verse 21 to verse 48. He's not contradicting the law of God. He's contradicting the way that Pharisees would have taught the law of God. Okay? So they subtract from things like murder and adultery. They subtract the heart so that all that matters is if I don't kill someone. All that matters is if I don't commit adultery physically. That's all that matters. Just this is, you can do this. But then they add to other things. So that the Old Testament command to love your neighbor in the mouths of the Pharisees becomes verse 41. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's not an Old Testament quote. They have heard it said. That's one thing you'll see. Is if you just go through 21 to 48, what you'll find is you've seen that it is written is not what Jesus says. He says, you've heard that it was said. He is, con- he is coming against and opposing the teaching of the Pharisees. Their teaching falls short. Jesus' teaching fulfills. Sinclair Ferguson wrote, Jesus did not weaken the law. On the contrary, he let it out of the cage in which the Pharisees had imprisoned it, allowing it to pounce on our secret thoughts and motives, tear to pieces our bland assumption that we are able to keep it in our own strength. Now I wonder, friends, if Gray Road was in the position of needing a new senior pastor, all right? I wonder if you would prefer a Pharisee-type preacher. Oh, you can hate that political enemy. Oh, you can divorce for whatever reason. Just make sure you do it legally. You can lust. Look, everybody lusts. Just don't do anything about it. Or I wonder if you'd prefer one who follows after Jesus and says, and goes after your heart. Who's not satisfied to have us all conforming to the external commands, but aims for the heart. Now, I know if I had you in a line and I asked each one of you those words, I know what you would say. But I wonder, what does your heart want? Does your heart want the permission to lust and to hate? 
Does your heart want permission to hate your political enemy and only love those that you consider neighbors? That's a question only you can answer before God. We can't work that out here. But if you read enough online and in social media formats, you will find, it seems, many who call themselves Christians want one of those types of preachers over Jesus. If you read books that are being published and you see what large collective organizations are putting their stamp on and and saying is good teaching and okay, you will find that they want the Pharisee who tells them, oh, you know what? You're just, you're just lusting. That's just kind of internal so long as you don't express it. You're just hating on the inside so long as you keep your mouth shut. So long as you don't throw the plate at your wife. So long as you don't punch a hole in the wall. So long as you don't do that kind of thing, you're okay. So long as it's just on the inside. Friends, we'll get to this in two weeks, but that is precisely the argument being made about something that is so clearly spoken of as homosexuality in the Bible. That it is okay for the desire to be there so long as it is not expressed. Friends, that is the statement of the Pharisee and not of Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfills the teaching of the Old Te- in, in his teaching, he fulfills the Old Testament. He also fulfills it in his life. All the demands of the Old Testament, the demands for holiness, uh, are fulfilled in him. You remember how Jesus summarized the law in two commands? Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And friends, Jesus of Nazareth is the only human being to ever fully obey that. Peter wrote, he committed no sin. That's as simple as it gets. At every point, Jesus is obedient to the law and submissive to his Father. Even when it means suffering, he doesn't complain. He loves to obey. In John chapter 4, he says, it's my food to do the will of the one who sent me. It's fulfilled in his life. And then it's also fulfilled in his death. In the law, disobedience demands death. Now, there are, very, there are some very specific places. Let me just read some of them. This is not all of them, all right? Death is the expected outcome for murder, kidnapping, child sacrifice, adultery, rape, idolatry, enticing others to idolatry, homosexuality, incest, being a false prophet, being a false witness, blasphemy, breaking the Sabbath, striking, cursing, or disobeying your parents, violence against a pregnant woman where she lives but the baby dies, being a sorcerer, being a medium, being a fortune teller, trying to communicate with the dead, and on and on and on. All these types of things call for 
death. In other words, when it comes to the breaking the law, death is all-encompassing. Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 18, the one who sins shall die. And then Paul echoes it in Romans 6, doesn't he? The wages of sin is what? Death, yes. Now we hear that list and we think, I have not done any of those things. I may have told a little white lie. I may have fibbed a little bit on my taxes. I may have been selfish when driving through traffic. But I haven't done any of those things. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. God doesn't connect every sin to death specifically. Well, well, let's hear what James has to say, shall we? James says... For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. That harsh response to your children makes you guilty of everything the law commands. That private moment of lust in your heart, of hatred in your heart, makes you guilty of everything the law demands. If that doesn't overwhelm you, I don't know what will. Because you break one, you've broken it all. The order of life that the law seeks to put in place is shattered when we break the least of them. So guilt at one point is complete guilt and it deserves punishment. You see, because God is holy, He can't tolerate sin. And because God is just, He must punish sin. So death actually awaits us all because we have all sinned. And yet God is merciful and loving, and He has acted in mercy and love, sending Jesus Christ to fulfill the law's demand, God's demand, for death as punishment for sin. Jesus is whipped Jesus is beaten. Jesus is tortured. A crown of thorns is pressed into his head. He gasps for breath on the cross. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as we see the sights of the cross and as we hear the pain in our Savior's voice, we should know this is what the law demands. This is what sin deserves. This is what I deserve. The next time you are tempted to say something like or think something like, I don't deserve to be treated this way, then ask yourself from a biblical perspective, what is it that I do deserve? I deserve infinite punishment for sin against an infinitely glorious God. 
Jesus didn't deserve it. He was sinless. Yet our sin was laid on him. He took the punishment we deserve. You see, the, law, the laws demand that our sin be punished by death. It will either be carried out and fulfilled in us for all eternity as we suffer eternal conscious torment in hell, or it will be fulfilled for us in Jesus when we place our faith in Him. But dear friends, it's not going away. The law's demand will be fulfilled. It'll either be in us forever or it'll be for us in Christ when we trust in Him. Look, the fact of the matter is is that because we all sin, the logical conclusion you should draw is you do too. Because we all deserve punishment, the, the, the logical conclusion that you should draw is you do too. And because God's grace is sufficient for all, to forgive the sin of all who come to Him by faith, the logical conclusion is your sin can be forgiven too. You can know grace too. And that's good news. Go to Him in faith. Jesus has fulfilled the law in His death. So can, that we can know the grace of, for, of forgiveness and acceptance with God. Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets and he does it. Look what he says. Look at the first word in verse 18. What is it? You're going to have to be louder than that. For. There you go. It's not a golfer's plea. It, is, it means because. Why is it that Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets? The answer of verse 18 is because it's not going away. It's not going to wilt. It's not going to fade. It's not going to disappear. Isaiah 40 says the flower, uh, the, the, the flower, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And that's exactly what Jesus says is why he fulfills the law. In verse 18, truly I say, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Until the very end, God's word will be relevant. It'll be the final word, the final word on God, on mankind, on truth, on sin, on death, on salvation, on judgment, on eternity. Down to the very smallest little point. Will you put up the picture here? It, the, the iota refers to the Hebrew consonant yod, and dot is a word in Greek that means the smallest stroke of the pen. So if you look at this, this is Hebrew. I just wrote it on my whiteboard and took a picture of it. Uh, not so that you could read it, obviously. These characters aren't things that you... But the top word is Mitzrayim, which, mean, which is the, the Hebrew word for Egypt. Okay, And what I did was I circled in Mitzrayim the Yod, the Iota what Jesus is referring to. Those dots and dashes, those weren't in the original writing. 
uh, the Masoretes the Masoretes came along and did that so we would know how to pronounce what was there. All right, those are vowel pointings. But what was in the original was just what you see along the top, Mitzrayim, and that yod is the smallest of the Hebrew letters. But then look at the second one. That's mishpachot, which means families. Okay? Now, if you look at the last two letters, now you're, you're Western, so you're, re, you're trying to read this from right to, le- to left to right, but you go right to left. So the two letters on the far left of that word look awfully, awfully similar. Ignore the dot. They look awfully, awfully similar, don't they? The only difference is what I've circled. That little bitty foot that comes off the bottom of the second one. That makes that a tav and not a chet. And Jesus is saying, until heaven and earth pass away, that smallest of consonants, the smallest little pin stroke, is not going to become irrelevant. It's not going to fade. It's not going to pass away. Because if you take that away, you have a completely different word. That one little bloop. You see, God's word isn't like a newspaper or a magazine or whatever news website you checked this morning or even that probably like that church bulletin you got. It's not something you read and then you throw into the trash. God's word lasts forever. Every single dot, every yod, every pin stroke, all of it. That's why Jesus fulfills it. Now, that brings us to the question that may be on all of our minds, a question we need to ask whenever we go to the Bible, and that question is, so what? How does Jesus fulfilling the law and the prophets affect me today, tomorrow, as I go to work this week, as I go about my business? Well, the second heading gives us the answer, and that is that Christians don't discard the law, they obey it. Now, look at verses 19 and 20. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Don't discard God's law. Don't throw it away. Don't relax it like the Pharisees did. Do it. Obey it and teach others to do the same. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, of course, there are aspects that have been literally, completely, and could only be completely fulfilled and carried out in Jesus. Things like the ceremonial law, right? Things, these issues of clean and unclean. This is why all foods have been declared clean. There's no need. We don't actually, if you're a visitor here, we never actually do sacrifices of any kind. Because Jesus is the final sacrifice. The, and the issue of, say, cleanness and uncleanness with regard to participating in worship, that has been taken care of in Jesus Christ. He is the one who is the last sacrifice, the full and final, the once and for all. He is the one who has made us clean so that we can come in. But because we live as God's people in this world, we need God's moral law. I mean, the fact that Jesus kept it perfectly and credits us with his obedience doesn't mean we need to not worry about obeying. You know how I know that? Thank you, April. 
Look at the first word in verse 19. What is it? Therefore. Well, now wait a second. What is Jesus saying? That word, therefore, you know what that means? That means Jesus is drawing a conclusion based on what he's already said. Huh. If obedience didn't matter, do you know what Jesus would have said? Therefore, don't worry about obedience. Anyone who emphasizes obedience and teaches obedience is a legalist and they will be the least in the kingdom of heaven. So relax and tell other people to just relax and then you'll be the greatest. But that's not what he says, is it? He says exactly the opposite, doesn't he? Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Because the law matters, in other words, because the law matters to Jesus in his life, in his teaching, it matters to us. That's actually the point here. It's actually because Jesus fulfills the law that Christians can't discard it. That's why. Because Jesus fulfills it. He tells us his relationship with the law so that we'll get ours right. Our relationship with the law. I mean, all you have to do is go forward in the New Testament and we find an example of how the law is not discarded. The most explicit is probably in Ephesians 6 when Paul looks at the children through his letter, in, at, uh, looks at children in the Ephesian church, and he says this, Children, obey your parents for this is right, in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Well, apparently, Paul is not throwing out the law either. The obedience of children matters. Because honoring your parents matters. It matters for children and it matters for parents. Because God's moral law shouldn't be relaxed. Parents, we should teach our children to obey, to conform to God's will. Now, let me make very clear. It's not so, that, it's not so much so that they will respect us, right? Maybe you've heard yourself saying it or you've heard someone else saying it. You will respect me in this house. You will not treat me that way. Well, now, I would tell you that the emphasis is on the wrong syllable there. The emphasis there is on me. You will not treat me that way. But if we say, dear one, you cannot disrespect me because when you dishonor me, you dishonor God. That's what matters the most. The honoring of parents is on the way to the honor of the Lord. And that's what should matter most to us. 
God's law can't be set aside of relax. So, children, kids, parents, does obedience matter to you? It's a good question. Not just in the family, in all of life. But there's more. You see, we don't just need to obey on the outside. And I'm not just talking to kids now. I'm talking to all of us. We don't just need to be obedient on the outside. It's, it's actually not right to do what's right and paint a smile on our face while we're pouting in our hearts, while we're grumbling against what's required of us, while, while we're complaining about how hard it is, hating the obedience that we're carrying out. I will love my neighbor as myself. I will clean my room because mom has asked me to through gritted teeth. This is actually not what the Bible means by obedience at all. Because obedience is to come from the heart. We should actually want to obey because it pleases God. We should want to be holy because it pleases God. Obedience should go down to our motives, our thoughts, our aspirations should be to please God, to honor God, to be like the Lord Jesus Christ, who was obedient. In other words, our righteousness should exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Because if it doesn't, if we're okay to just have rottenness underneath and put a cover of righteous living on the top to where people think I'm living for the Lord... What is it that Jesus says in verse 20? You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Those are sobering words, aren't they? Jesus says much the same again at the end of his sermon, chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, the most religious Pharisee of that day, the one who will be named Pharisee of the year and be on the cover of Judaism today, is shut out of the kingdom of God. Let that sink in. Because his righteousness isn't deep enough. It doesn't go to the heart. It, it has to exceed the external. And friends, we'd be naive to think that there is no one in this room who's in the exact same position as the scribes and the Pharisees, who will be shut out, who has the appearance of obedience, of righteousness, who knows how to talk the talk, Lord, Lord, who claims service and church attendance and generous giving and concern for the poor and the marginalized and honesty on the golf course and ethical behavior at work and acts of kindness toward his wife or toward her husband or toward their children or toward strangers but still shut out 
Because in the end, the righteousness wasn't deep enough. It wasn't born out of a heart that was trusting in Jesus that had been declared righteous through the gift of salvation. It's just a cover. It's just a mask. It's just something I want you to see, completely forgetting what God sees, which is the heart. Jesus obeys and he loves the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And friend, because he did, and because he fulfilled the law and the prophets and the writings, and because he fulfills it in his teaching and in his life and in his death, those who trust in him with God's help can follow in his obedient footsteps. You see, because... Jesus fulfills the law. Christians can't ignore it. Christians must obey it. And I wonder, are you ignoring it? Are you ignoring it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Your word has told us how we can keep our way, how our path can be right, and that is by keeping it according to your word. Your word gives life. It is true and righteous and holy because it comes from you. We pray that you will give us our Savior's attitude toward the law to not discard it, to not relax it, to not dismiss it. But in all places that you call us to obedience, to obey not merely in our actions, but in our hearts. Make us an obedient congregation so that we might glorify our obedient Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.